0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it you can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com.
1: Getting into Romans... We've already got all the way to chapter 8. We don't have time to review everything that we've seen so far, especially with it being Mother's Day. I, wanna, I don't want to be as long as we normally go uh, so we can get back to celebrating our moms. <clears throat> but here's the big deal. Paul's never been to Rome. And he is writing them, telling them everything that he would have told them had he come. That's very important for us to understand because there is um, there is contention in the air. There is debate in the air about what, tr- how someone truly is a child of God, how someone truly is born of, of God, who exactly can be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there's a great debate, <clears throat> so much so that... The disciples themselves, the apostles themselves didn't see eye to eye. And Paul is setting forth his uh, contention that that uh, what he himself maintains. And he makes it very clear in chapter 3, I think it's verse 28 or so. He says, for we maintain that a man is justified. A man is made right. A man is made just, made perfect, made okay with God. Through faith alone and not by any work of the law. You see, the contention was in order to truly be a born again Christian, you had to also be a Jew. And the reason why they thought that is quite simple because all the promises in the Old Testament were made to the Jewish nation. The promises uh, of of land, the promises of an inheritance, the promise of wealth, all of that was made to the Jewish people. God chose the Jews to be his chosen people. And there were these promises made. And so the uh, logic, if you will, was if you want to be a part of this thing, this fulfillment of these promises made to the Jews, then not only do you need to believe in Jesus and what he's done for you, taking away your sins, et cetera, so forth, but you need to believe, you need, to become a Jew, like you have to be ethnically a Jew. Now, if you're not born uh, ethnically a Jew, there were other ways in you could become religiously a Jew. And in order to become religiously a Jew, you had to be, uh, place yourself under the Jewish religious system called Judaism, uh, specifically the Mosaic law. You had to become a lawkeeper. You had to uh, um, obligate yourself to the law. Now, to, to us, that might sound a little weird, uh, but to them, it sounded perfectly natural. It sounded perfectly, perfectly sensible. The promises were made to Jews, Jesus the Messiah came from the Jews, he was a Jew by birth himself, and so if you want to be a part of the Jesus movement, then you've got to become a Jew yourself. So it made perfect logical sense to those who were in the Jewish system. The problem, however, is that there was a mystery. There was always a mystery that was hidden, Paul says, to the Colossians. It was hidden from previous generations. But now it's been made known that this thing isn't about an ethnicity. This thing isn't about anything, for that matter, according to the flesh. But there is another reality, another world, another uh, inheritance. And this isn't about land and about wealth and about enough dough in your kneading bowl, like the the law spoke about, if you fulfilled the law. This is about an inheritance of actually having God himself. And so the Lord Jesus revealed some truth to Paul in a way perhaps that he didn't reveal to some of the other apostles. I don't know. Maybe the other apostles just weren't listening. I, I, I wasn't there. I don't know the whole story, but what I do know is that there was a great contention between uh, the Christians in this early time, some thinking you, yes, all believe and you have to believe in Jesus. They all believe that. But a great ma- majority of them believed, and we'll see here uh, as we get into Romans 8, more specifically, exactly what they believe, but uh, they, they basically believe that you had to become religiously a Jew. You couldn't ethnically become a Jew. I mean, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't ethnically become a a, a Jew, because that's, you know, that's your ethnicity. But you could, could could you could convert. That was hard to say. You could convert to Judaism um, by choice, uh, be a proselyte to Judaism, and place your your faith, your hope, and your commitment to the Jewish law, and therefore you could be a Jew. In fact, the Pharisees after the um, after the exile, they had actually sent out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people throughout the known. Uh, Mediterranean world to set up synagogues throughout the Mediterranean world for the purpose of converting Gentiles to Judaism. Not not for, not for having anything to do with Jesus, because Jesus hadn't come yet, but they wanted to uh, expedite. They wanted to prove their faithfulness to the Lord. They had just come out of the exile, and they wanted to go above and beyond and actually convert more Gentiles to Judaism so they could be shown for how faithful they were to the mosaic law and so there's now synagogues all throughout the 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 roman world the the mediterranean world and so Paul when he's converted and when when the Lord Jesus reveals to him the truth about the gospel that this isn't about an ethnicity this isn't about a religion it's actually about death and being buried with Christ and being raised together with Christ a whole new creation as Paul is is is, is sees this and understands this he now takes this message of Jesus plus nothing else. It's not Jesus plus Judaism. It's not Jesus plus keeping the Ten Commandments. It's actually Jesus plus nothing else to the Roman world. And every place he goes, every stop along the, the way, he's confronted with people who say, no, 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 Paul, it can't be just Jesus. We've heard from Ju- uh, Jerusalem. We've heard from Jerusalem. It's Jesus plus conversion to uh, uh Judaism. And it made perfect sense to them. But Paul is trying his best to enlighten them to the truth that this has nothing to do with the flesh. This is 100% having to do with the spirit and our new life in Christ. And so Paul is writing this letter called, we call Romans, to, to unmask the truth uh, and, and, and the, the the falseness of a Jesus plus something else. And he spent the entirety of chapter, uh, mostly of five, but of six and of seven, to, to tell us, and them particularly, but us as we read it today, just why God gave the law in the first place. It wasn't to be a means of attainment, to, to something to attain to. It was actually given to increase sins, to increase trespasses, to... Open the, the person's eyes to understand just how far and how hopeless we are without Christ, without salvation, and that we need salvation. We need rescue from this thing that, uh, called sin. And so Paul explains, he gives his own personal testimony in chapter 7 of how when he came under the law, this thing that they're trying to get Gentiles to come under, when he was placed under the law, sinning increased, not decreased, And so Paul is building this argument. He's laying out the facts that we maintain that no man is made righteous by any work of the law. In fact, if you commit yourself to the law, if you place yourself under the law, the only thing that's going to increase is sinning, not righteousness. Righteousness comes by grace through faith alone. And so as Paul gets into chapter 8 this is it gets really cool because he's laying this incredible foundation for really chapters 9 10 and 11 and 9 10 and 11 is an amazing uh, explanation of how God had always forever planned to bring Gentiles into this thing of the kingdom of heaven it was it was not understood it was not Proclaimed, it was not um, uh, taught. But Paul, nonetheless, is trying his best to, again, to unmask the truth that from the beginning, the beginning of all beginnings, there was a plan by God to actually include the Gentiles, people that were not chosen, people that were not a part of the special. Family of God, the special family of the Jews, God had planned from the very beginning to actually include them in this thing of the new covenant and it was um, it was unknown it was a mystery it was not commonly you know uh, received. And so Paul, everywhere he went, he was up against this. You do not have to become a Jew. You do not have to become, uh, place yourself under the law, because if you do that, it's just going to make sinning worse. Who wants that? And now here we are 2,000 years later as Christians in America, and most of us are underneath the the misunderstanding to put it lightly that in order for us to truly grow in our christian life we have got to find the rules that god has listed out throughout the bible wherever and do our best to adhere to them so that we can become more righteous more clean more close more holy more sanctified and so that we can get better with god And so we look through from Genesis to Revelation, the various rules, and we pick out some. We pick out a lot. We pick out a few that we think we can do. We think we can pull off. We look at the Ten Commandments, and we pull at least nine of the Ten Commandments out, and we say, hey, those are some rules to live by. We don't do all ten because one of them says, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and that's sundown on friday till sundown on saturday and i don't know about you but you know we have ball games to go to t-ball uh softball well not right now but you know when there's not coronavirus we have yard work to do we have cars to work on we have you know uh dishes to wash on saturday and so emails to send so every single one of us um violate that law of sabbath um when we do any sort of work on saturday and so we don't live by all 10 of those. We, we, we whittle it down to nine and then we, you know, we add some others and we say, this is the, the way of the Christian life to try our best, to do our best, to do these commandments, to live in the flesh, by the flesh, according to the flesh, to do these certain things, um, and to give it our all and to try our best. And what I hear Paul simply revealing throughout Romans. And in fact, if you want to Read it again in Galatians, you can read it there. And if you want to read it in Ephesians, you can read it there. And if you want to pick up Philippians, if you want to pick up Colossians, if you want to pick up his letter to Titus, it is the same consistent message. It is not Jesus plus action. It's not Jesus plus rules. It's not Jesus plus any sort of adherence and obligation to any sort of law, rule, command. It is Jesus plus nothing because as soon as you add something else to the mix, our dependency upon Jesus is is um, is diverted to now it's dependency upon Jesus plus dependency upon the flesh to adhere to a certain expectation upon the flesh. And so we were 100% dependent upon Jesus. Now we're 75% dependent upon Jesus, 25% dependent upon the flesh to improve the flesh, to beha- manage our sins and modify our behaviors. And so Paul, like a steady drum, he is continuously, continuously, continuously getting us back to the truth that we contend, we maintain that a man is made right. A man is, is, continues his rightness. A man will always be what he is, not by works of the law, not by works of any sort of righteousness, but by faith alone. And our key word for faith here is dependency upon Jesus. And so in Romans 8.1, Paul says, this was last week, it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law, the principle of the spirit of, the, of life in Christ Jesus, has set us free from another principle, the principle of, of, of sin and death. Sin and death still exists in this world, just like gravity. We talked about this last week, but there's another established fact. And the other established fact is the law of of the spirit of life, which is greater than the law of sin and death, just like the law of lift is greater than the law of gravity. And so we have now been set free from the law of sin and death because of the law of life in the spirit. We've died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, and now we've been raised a new creation. And so, Paul continues. We're picking up in verse 12. So then, brethren, he's talking to these folk in Rome. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. So we have a debt. We do have a debt. But listen to who we are, what he says here. We are not under obligation to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So we now in this new life in Christ, how do we live? Here, if you if you like taking notes, if you like jotting things down in the margin of your Bible, here's a really good important one to, to to write, to highlight, to underline. We have no obligation to the flesh. We have no obligation to the law, which is the a minister of the flesh that we think religiously improves the flesh, but it doesn't. The whole context that Paul has been in since like chapter, well, one, but specifically chapter five is the law versus the life and the spirit. So he says, we are under no obligation to the flesh and it is the law that that condemns the flesh. It's the law that, that works in our members to produce sinning of all sorts. And so Paul says we have no obligation to the law, to, to the flesh in, in whatsoever. Now that we are in the spirit, it is as oil and water. We have absolutely no debt whatsoever, any longer, any further, to fulfill the law by obedience to it, which would then, in theory or in religious thought improve the flesh. We have no obligation. So if you have the question, if the thought is pondering around in your head, okay, so I hear Paul saying that we're dead to the law. We have no relationship to the law. We're dead to sin. We have the the jurisdiction of the law, uh, the ten, in, including the 10 commandments, specifically the 10 commandments, because remember, that's what Paul uses as an example. Uh, Thou shalt not commit what, uh, shalt not covet. We have no obligation whatsoever to the law. That's our relationship. We have no debt to it. We have no obligation to keep it. It is not our guide. It is not our master. It is not our teacher. So all of these people in first century Israel, first century, you know, Mediterranean world, first century Rome, who have been taught for years that in order to be a Christian, a Christ follower, you actually have to be a a, a Jew and you have to obligate yourself to the Ten Commandments, to the 613 laws of the Old Testament. What Paul is plainly black and white writing to them right now is that we have no obligation to the flesh. We have no obligation to anything that stimulates the flesh from the outside in, i.e., Namely, specifically, the law. And he explains it. F-O-R, it's your friend. You got to love these fours. Verse 13, For you can explain yourself there, Paul. We have no obligation to the law. for if you are living according to the flesh, meaning if you're looking at your flesh and you're deriving your life from that. You're deriving your life by how well your flesh is accomplishing a list of rules and commandments written on stones, the letters, the engraved on stones. If we are living according to the flesh, you must die or other translations that you will die. There's death in that. And he's already explained that. He doesn't have to explain that. He's explained that in chapter seven thoroughly. He said, I thought I was once alive. And then the law came in and said, don't covet. And then I started coveting of all sorts. And then I died. I realized how dead I was. And so Paul is saying, if you're living according to the flesh, you think you're deriving life from the body, from the flesh, from adherence to the laws, rules, and commands. Here's the reality. You've got to come to the end of yourself. You've got to realize just how dead you are. But... Look at this, verse 13, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, this is so cool to me. This is so cool to me. Paul clearly states that there is a behavioral change that's normal in the life of a Christian. A Christian's behavior will change. It should change even, I hear Paul uh, uh, arguing for, but the question comes to how? What is the impetus? What is the catalyst for this change? Is it living according to the flesh, living in, in a by a list of rules of obligations and figuring out how well I'm doing in these, having an accountability partner who says, you know, how many times did you do this this week? How many times did you do that? And examining the flesh in order to examine our commitment to the Lord or, or, or our holiness, our righteousness, etc living in that way, according to the flesh, you've got to, you've got to die. You've got to realize that there is death in that and that you cannot whatsoever achieve that. But if you live by the spirit, if by the spirit, you are putting to death, the deeds of the body, then that's life. You see this? So there is a change. There is a reduction of the deeds of the body, but how What is the means? He says this change comes by what? The spirit. It's by dependency upon the spirit. So let's just get a little practical here. Let's say you've got an issue with, with, well, let's go back to coveting. All right. Coveting. You've got coveting like Paul. A coveting of all sorts. You, you covet your, your neighbor's new car, the new lawnmower. You even covet the dog that they just got as you've wanted a dog, but your wife won't let you get a dog and it's mother's day. And so you can't bring a new dog to the house on mother's day of all days. Wait till father's day. Then you bring your new dog in, but you covet everything from your, 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 your neighbor. And you've placed under this law that says thou shalt not covet. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Is coveting good is Paul or any a, apostle for that matter and more importantly is the spirit of god advocating for coveting wanting something seeing something else and 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 lusting for it wanting it desiring it thinking that it will fulfill you of course not that's not a desire of the spirit for you to covet and so what is paul saying there are the deeds of the body that are evil of course sin is quarantined into the flesh he's talked about this for chapters now but how are those desires of the flesh, the deeds of the body, how are those reduced? He says, by the spirit. If by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, there's life. You'll live, you will experience true living because it's not looking to the flesh to measure righteousness, to, to curb sinning by a list it's looking to the spirit within and living and growing in dependency of the life of someone else who's now in you christ himself and watching him by him filling you by you realizing how much you actually have in him guess what now is like a fleeting thought your name i'm looking out the window at my neighbor's car the car is a fleeting thought why am I even thinking about wanting what he's got? When look what I do have. I have the God who flung the stars into space living in me. Do you see this? This is living by the spirit, receiving our contentment, our fullness, our, our joy, our happiness from Christ who dwells in. And if by the spirit, the deeds of the body are put to death. Hey man, that's life. That's life. And he goes into verse 14, for, F-O-R, he explains it. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And I'll just add, like for emphasis, the true sons of God. There's a reason why Paul is so adamant about who the sons of God truly are. And he says, it's those who are led by the spirit. Those who are living in dependency upon the spirit, not those who are living according to the flesh, not those who look at a list of rules of 613 rules as perfect and holy as they are because they are and trying to derive life. Paul just said that the law was weak and useless. The law could not derive life, could not give life what the law could not do. God did sending his only son in the likeness of evil flesh to die to take away sin, to condemn sin in the body, in the flesh. The law can't do that, but God did. For all who are being led by the Spirit, all who are in dependency upon the Spirit, not stones, but the Spirit, those are the sons of God. So Paul's adamant about this. I'm gonna take a few seconds, and I know our time is already fleeting, but i want to take a, just a few seconds to give some, some better history about what's going on here in Paul's life, in Paul's world, okay? The common understanding of the church, and we hit on this in our introduction, particularly the common understanding in the church in Jerusalem, where the church started, up until this point in history, is that only Jews were the true sons of God. And so if a Gentile wanted to be saved, then that Gentile had to become a Jew. Since the beginning of the Christian church in Jerusalem, this was the understanding. And now Paul is writing this letter called Romans some 27 years after the church started in Jerusalem. The church started in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Paul's writing this letter on his at the end of his third missionary journey, because we'll see later in the letter that he actually says that he's on his way back to Jerusalem to give the offering to the saints in Jerusalem that he's been collecting. And that's when he's arrested and he ends up going actually to Rome for the very first time, ironically, uh, under, uh, eventually, uh, I, most would say to die. It's not included in the scriptures, but that's more than likely what happened um, after he appealed to Caesar. So imagine with me this huge, huge task that Paul has of setting this misunderstanding straight for 27 years, probably the most critical time of the early church is when it first got started in these early foundational years of the church, 27 years, the Romans who are living in Rome, they have had this understanding, this thinking that in order to be a Christ follower, you have to be a Jew because remember only Jews were the sons of God. Only Jews were understood to be the descendants or sons of of the most high. And so therefore to be a true son you had to be a true Jew. And so they would convert to Judaism. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, okay? So the church started in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 20 uh, what is it five six seven that's when Paul goes to ro- to Jerusalem with the offering right in the middle of all that is Acts chapter 15 this is probably 15 to 20 years after Acts chapter 2 after the church was started on Pentecost some 15 to 20 years later Paul goes to Jerusalem another time a separate time to try to set the record straight that Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to to be saved, sons of God. Paul shares what he's experienced, what the Lord has shared with him. Peter even stands up and talks about how the Lord had taken him to Cornelius's house, and, and he had seen Gentiles being saved without conversion to Christ, to, to Judaism, that, that the Holy Spirit came and, and gave us signs of, of speaking in different languages, at Cornelia, a Gentile's house without them being converted to to Judaism. And so they were both arguing, yeah, no, this really is true that Gentiles can be saved apart from conversion to Judaism without being uh, uh, sons and daughters of Moses and and the law. And what happened, you could read it for yourself in in Acts 15, but the leaders of the Jewish church, they just didn't really know what to do with this. And I want to read a little excerpt from Acts chapter 15, because a man named James made a decision. Now, when we hear the name James, there's a several Jameses in the new Testament. There's at least two that we need to think about. One James was uh, the, the, the disciple, the apostle, the the disciple James that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In fact, I believe the, the, the gospels tell us that this James was the brother of John, Sons of Zebedee, right? Well, in Acts chapter 12, that James was killed by King Herod. Um, So that James is dead and gone. So who's the James of Acts chapter 15? Well, what we understand the James of Acts 15 to be is the same James who wrote the letter we call James back at the end of the New Testament next to Hebrews. And that James is identified in this letter as the brother, the half brother of Jesus himself. If you go back to the gospels, you read where they write out the brothers of, of Jesus and James, a man named James is one of Jesus's half brothers. And I say half because of course, Mary was the mother of them all, uh, the biological mother of, of Jesus, And of James, but James's father, of course, was would have been Joseph, whereas Jesus's father was not Joseph, uh, but God the Father Himself. And so this James, the half brother of Jesus, after Peter and Paul make their argument, the Scripture says that there was silence, and and almost like, well, what do we do with this? This does not fit in our understanding of how Christianity works, and so James answers. He says, brethren, listen to me. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the half brother of Jesus. Verse 14, Acts chapter 15, verse 14. Simon, talking about Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And James quotes the Old Testament. He says, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So James agrees. He says, now there is a Gentile contingency. Yeah, I mean, the prophets talked about it. Now, hear how James, his his decision, he says in verse 19, therefore, it is my judgment, and I don't know how James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the spokesman for the church, but he apparently is. He says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Okay, it sounds good. But that we write to them that they abstain from food contaminated by idols and from fornication and from that which is strangled from blood. So he says, let's don't give them all 613 laws, let's just give them these three to live by. Now look at this last verse, verse 21, and this might set some people on fire. Don't come by my house and egg my house because I read verse 21. He explains his decision. He says, for Moses from ancient generations has in every city, those who preach him since he Moses is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So what James says is we are not going to argue with Peter and Paul. If these Gentiles want the truth, they, they're really, here's how they're going to find it. The Gentiles are going to find the truth in the local synagogue. They're going to find the truth in the city where the synagogues have been set up and where the reading and the preaching of Moses has been established. So catch this now, James is declaring, we're not going to waste our time arguing with Paul and Peter anymore. If these Gentiles who are following Jesus, if they really want the truth, they can find the truth. And the truth is found in the synagogue, in the reading of Moses. So I hear James saying, case closed. We're not going to waste any more time on this. If these Gentiles really want the truth, they'll find the truth, just like we know the truth, which is found in Moses. So uh, there is contention between Peter and Paul, in particularly with James and the leaders, you can read more about that in Galatians as well. But Paul is building to a three plus chapter argument that God has always had a secret plan to include the Gentiles in the mix. Chapter nine, 10 and 11 is this treatise from Paul of Romans, Romans 9, 10, 11, a treatise that God has always always had the plan to include Gentiles, and Gentiles do not have to become Jews in order to be included. Specifically, the plan that Paul's gonna talk about is that God has sought to include Gentiles in the family of God without Gentiles becoming Jews. And right here, he's laying out this groundwork, this foundation, to these Roman Gentiles that they are sons, not because they've committed themselves to Judaism, that not because they've committed themselves to the law or to an obligation of the flesh, because we're not under obligation to the flesh, but rather they are sons of God because they have been, and here's the word he uses, adopted. As sons. Look at verse 14, 15. Four, For, F O R, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but rather you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now let's break this down real quickly. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. What's that in reference to, it's in reference to the law. He's saying, guys, this thing that you've received, this new creation, this new life in Christ, it has no context. It has no bearing. It has no reference to the law and the requirements of the law and the bony fingers of condemnation that the law are pointing at you. You have not been adopted. Your new heart, your new spirit, your new mindset, your new attitude is not in any sort of way related to that which the law produces which is fear and trembling and and he says instead you've received another spirit a spirit not of fear but of adoption as sons so our sonship is not sonship in relation to obligation to the law in any sort of way our sonship or specifically the romans here but those who follow christ the sonship is based upon adoption now what is adoption? I need to set the record straight here for a second. In America, when we think of adoption, we think of a family who reaches out to uh, someone who's not a part of their family and they receive them as a part of their family, which is super awesome and super cool. But that new member of the family who's been adopted, they, their biological folk are not in that family. It's their adopted families, their adoptive folk. Their heritage is not that family. Their genealogy is not that family. It's actually, you know, biologically someone else. And so what I want us to differentiate is that in the kingdom of heaven, that's not the way Paul is trying to explain adoption here. Adoption is not, we are still in Adam. We're still defiled. We're still wicked. We're still sinners. We're still um uh, 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 worms, dirty rotten, but now we just have changed our last name to being in God's family. That's not adoption in the kingdom of heaven. That's adoption perhaps in our world where, you know, again, biologically, we're still other uh, from another family, but legally we're now a part of a new family. That's not adoption as Paul's putting it in the kingdom of heaven, adoption in the kingdom of heaven comes only by death burial and resurrection death meaning the end of that relationship with adam that initiation with adam burial taking that old man far away placing it as far that in our 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 sin debt as far as the east is from the west where christ himself has set us free from and then resurrection by a new birth see we are actually born of him as adopted sons it's not we're still born of adam and we just kind of have a legal declaration by a judge. And now we're adopted as God's kids, but we're still, you know, Adam's kids like biologically, spiritually, that's not adoption in the kingdom of heaven. Adoption is literally comes from two words, the Greek word for son and the Greek word for to be placed. So all adoption means as Paul is saying, it is that we, our spirit comes from one that has been placed as a son. We're placed as a son. That's the spirit of our relationship. We've been placed as sons, not a fear of, of, of trying to uh, uh, live up to uh, expectations written in the law, which produce a, a fear and a condemnation. That's not the relationship that we have with the Lord. Well, the relationship we have with the Lord, the spirit that we have with him is one as we have been placed as his son. So cool. So he's laying out this groundwork That sonship comes from adoption being placed as a son, not through heredity. It's not through who your mama's mama is. It's not because you were a descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's not sonship. That does not equal sonship. So adoption, the condition, the attitude of our sonship is that we've been placed as sons, sons and daughters. Through death, burial, and resurrection, it's the ending of the old Jew, the removal of the old Jew and a brand new, you a new creation. It's not the old, you and a new family. And he says, by which we cry out, Abba, daddy, Abba, father, Abba is, is the Aramaic way in which a little baby just simply says, daddy. If we were to go to an Aramaic speaking uh, region area and you would hear the little babies crying out for dad, they would say, Abba, Abba, Abba. It's like my little, my kids, even now at, at nine, seven and five, but especially when they were even younger and they would only knew a few words. In fact, I think some of their first words were just daddy. And so they would just say, daddy, daddy, daddy. I don't want to embarrass her, but there's a certain time of the day that my little five-year-old always cries out, daddy, daddy. Cause she needs something done to her that she doesn't yet do for herself, if you know what I'm saying. And so it's just this cry of dependency, daddy, daddy, I need you, daddy. I can't get up until you come, daddy. That's the spirit that we now have as being placed as sons of God himself. It's a spirit of sonship where we cry out, daddy, It's, Abba is the cry of dependency. Our spirit cries out in total dependency. Our spirit knows the truth of our true dependency upon the Father. Our spirit knows just how truly dependent we are on Him. Our spirit, our new heart, is not looking to letters engraved upon stones. Our new spirit is not trying to serve God by the old letters. Our spirit, our new heart... It knows the truth that has set its its free, that we are now ministers, servants of the new covenant, not the old. Our spirit, our new heart knows the truth of our Abba relationship with the Father. The problem is, do we know that in our heads? Our spirit, at our core, we know that. But has that worked its way up into these minds that are slowly being renewed? Verse 16, the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And I I can hear Paul refuting with the Jews who would say the Jews would say, we are children of God. We are sons of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob. We have the law. We have the oracles of God. We are the true sons of God. But do you remember when we were walking through um, John, remember in John 8, what God, what Jesus himself told those same Pharisees? He says, you are of your father, the devil. So having the law, being under the law, living by the law does not make you a son of God. And Paul expresses this much more in in depth in chapter 9, 10, and 11. And we'll get to that. He's laying the foundation that your Gentiles, your sonship doesn't have to do with heredity. It has to do with dependency. And if children, verse 17, then we're also heirs. If we're sons of his, then we're also heirs of his, heirs of God, and also fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may all also be glorified with him. And so we're heirs of God. That speaks of an inheritance. So Paul is saying there's actually an inheritance. There's a familial inheritance that we get being sons of God. And what is the inheritance? Well, to the Jews in the Old Testament, the promise over the inheritance was the land. it was blessings from God. It was all things physical in the law there wasn 't any sort of spiritual blessing. it was all physical again, I referenced enough need, uh, dough in your kneading bowl if you keep these certain laws and rules, and so there was always a physical inheritance, but that was all a shadow, a picture of something grander and greater, a better relationship, a better inheritance. What is our inheritance now? Well Ezekiel 36 speaks to it. He says that I will put my spirit in them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Here's the inheritance that we have it's not dough in our kneading bowl that never runs out. It's not land. The inheritance is God himself. I will be their people I will, be their, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will wipe away every tear from their eye, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest. Do you see it? Do you see that your inheritance is God Himself? This mystery that was hidden but now is revealed, that Christ Himself, the fullness of God, now lives in you? That's the inheritance. What could trump that? So this has nothing to do with the flesh and obedience to laws and rules and commands has nothing to do with conformity to jewish traditions or circumcisions cutting off foreskins this has nothing to do with that has everything to do with total dependency upon jesus and he says here in verse 17 we have this inheritance if we suffer with him what's he talking about well think about the peer pressure that paul had in all the jews for that matter all the christian jews all the Gentile Christian Jews, think about the peer pressure that they had to reject the Jesus plus nothing message and to accept a Jesus plus Judaism message. Think of the peer pressure. It's massive. It's It's what was preached for 27 years before Paul shows up with this letter to the Romans. It's all that they had heard. And so now they're supposed to reject this Jesus plus Judaism and embrace this Jesus plus nothing. There's going to be great persecution. There's going to be great um, opposition because Paul is basically saying that these rules, these commandments, these, this stuff of the law, it has no benefit to those who are already righteous. It has great benefit to the unrighteous. He tells, who was it? Timothy, that the law is is good if it's used lawfully. But the law is not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And if you're in Christ, you've been made righteous. And so Paul explains this suffering. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to revealed. For, so he's talking about the, the suffering. Paul has been persecuted. He's been, uh, in Philippi, they chased him out so so harshly that I think he had to be let down by a basket out of the, out of the uh, wall. He's been uh, beaten several times. He shows up to Galatians so beaten and battered that he couldn't even see well. He couldn't see straight. He has been persecuted like no other because he is willing to contend that a man is made righteous, by faith in Christ with no works of the law. And so he's been beaten and he suffers. And he says he says that this suffering that he has, it's nothing, it's nothing in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So he's saying this isn't just about Do I be a Jew? Do I not be a Jew? He's saying the entire creation, all that is, is living in this great anxiety, this great anticipation of what is right now in us in the new heart, the adoption as sons, the placement as sons to be completely revealed out through us. Look at this for creation. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So all of creation has been uh, subjected to this futility for this anticipation of the one day when that which has already happened in the new heart is manifest and seen for what it is in this world. That the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's saying this is cosmic This is huge. All of creation. Think of the universe is held right now in anxiety and in futility, waiting, waiting for the great reveal that will come one day. And he gets into this. Look at this. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this but we ourselves also having the first fruits of the spirit, even we grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for our adoption as sons. wait a minute, Paul, didn't you say that we've already been placed as sons? What do you mean we're waiting for adoption? Now he clarifies, this is so cool. That is the redemption of our body. The whole premise is, Your flesh has got to get under control. Your flesh, your body, your actions have got to get right. So let's pick Jesus. You need Jesus for salvation because the law can't save you. So we've got to add, you've got to add on Jesus. But you need the law in order to curb sinning. You need the law in order to know what to, how to do what's right and to not do what's wrong. And what I hear Paul saying is like, guys, no, 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 no. We have no obligation to that sort of thinking. We have no obligation to the flesh. Our obligation, in air quotes, is simply, we desire to live by the spirit within. And he puts to death the deeds of the body. But the deeds of the body are just that, the deeds of the body. They're not deeds of the new man the deeds of the body. And as we live by the spirit, will not walk in the flesh Galatians chapter five and six. And he's saying here, now there is a groaning within us that one day, and it's not today, but one day this adoption as sons will be revealed in a brand new redemption of even the body. So all of this effort to try to curb sinning, to try to reduce sins, to try to uh, manage your behavior, modify your sins, all that sort of stuff, it's futile. That's the true futility. It's futile because sin will always live in these mortal bodies and it's not gonna happen by adherence to the laws and the commands. It's only gonna make it worse. But as we walk by the Spirit, as we depend upon Christ who lives within us, the one that we cry out, Abba, the one that we cry out in dependency, There's going to be a day when this reality is made known. And even all of creation explodes and erupts in joy when the very body, the flesh itself is redeemed for looks verse 24 in hope we have been saved. Salvation is about a hope. Look at this, but hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he has already seen? So salvation is all about a hope, an unseen desire, an unseen expectation, an unseen fact that you are depending upon hope. And Paul is saying, if this is seen, then it's not hope. And if it's not hope, it's not salvation. For salvation is by faith, by trusting and depending upon something that cannot be seen. You see this? So if if your faith is based upon something that you can see, a behavior improvement plan, aka the law, the 10 commandments, oh, let's sprinkle in some Jesus because we know it can't actually save us, but but our our hope is in doing the law, our hope is in living according to the flesh. That's not hope. That's not salvation. That's flesh. That's not living by the spirit. That's not living in dependence upon the spirit within. But if we hope, verse 25, for what we do not see with with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. That's where we're going to end today. We're going to pick up the last half, last third of chapter eight next week. But here what Paul is saying, he's laying this foundation, this groundwork for the law. We have no obligation to it. As born-again believers, we have zero obligation to any sort of living by the flesh. Well, then how in the world, Paul, does the sinning of the body, how does that reduce? He says it's by dependency upon the Spirit. For by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, not by the laws written in commands and rules and regulations, but if by the Spirit we're putting to death the deeds of the body, there's life. For we have not been given a spirit of, of, of fear back into slavery again under the law. We're not Christians who have been thrown back under the slavery to the law and the jurisdiction of the law. We've died to that so that we can now have a new righteousness, a new relationship, this time with God himself, who is our guide, the spirit himself, who is our teacher, the spirit himself, who is our life. And as we live in dependency upon him, then we get to watch the fruit of his spirit manifesting through us in this broken world. And Paul is saying, guys, this is so big. This is cosmic. The entire creation, the universe itself has been placed under this sort of anticipation, this anxiety looking for this day to come. The universe itself is living in dependency. Why are you not? The universe itself is not living in some sort of code written down on, on tablets of stone. The universe itself is living in dependency for if God himself in this very moment were to not allow the sun to, to, to shine, it would stop shining. Paul is saying the universe lives in the same uh, dependency, the same anxiety, if you will, of a dependency upon Christ himself. And this dependency will one day be manifested for what it truly is. The righteousness of Christ within will be manifested one day with a righteous body, but that day is not today. Today is this sin is quarantined into this flesh, but the day will come. In fact, it's predestined. Paul is going to say next week, I invite you to come back, that it is predestined for our bodies to come into conformity with Christ. It's a plan. It's a plan of God that nothing can thwart. So I invite you to come back next week as we wrap up chapter eight, but think about this. All of chapter eight, I contend is setting a groundwork for chapter nine, 10, 11, where Paul goes into great detail, explaining that from the very beginning, God's choice, God's plan, God's desire was always, always to include another people in his people, for I will Call the people who are not my people, my people. Who are those people? The Gentiles. And so all of these Jews who are Christians in Jerusalem, they're arguing amongst themselves that, no, you can't be a Gentile and be a Christian. You have to convert to Judaism, i.e., you have to place yourself under the law. But Paul says, no, no, no. Sonship does not come by heredity. It doesn't come by having... Jew next to your name. Sonship comes by dependency. That's true sonship. And that's our journey marker. Dependency creates sonship, not heredity. Dependency creates sonship, not heredity. Does the spirit of God live in you? If you are living in dependency upon him in this very moment, then the answer is yes. If you are depending upon your spiritual heritage, If you're living upon your, if you're depending upon your genealogical stock. If you're living dependent upon your ability to live like the Jews who, how they were supposed to live, to avoid evil and do good, then the answer is no, you don't have the spirit of God living in you. Dependency creates sonship, not heredity. So we're going to pause right here because we've already been going for an hour and we got to pick up the rest of chapter eight where paul just hammers it and hammers it and hammers it home that this whole thing has been god's choice god's plan from the beginning and there's nothing we can do to stop it the jews are god's chosen people from the old testament but there is that was for a purpose and for a reason there is now the Gentiles that have been, as he'll talk about, grafted in. We'll talk about what that means for the purpose of bringing together under one new name, the name of Jesus, people from the entire globe, Jew and Gentile alike. So, what do you base your sonship on? Do you base your sonship upon keeping some rules, some actions, doing some activity like church? Is that what your sonship is based on? If so, then I don't think you have sonship. Sonship is based upon dependency upon him where we cry out, Abba, Jesus, you are my hope. You are my life. And by his spirit, the deeds of the body are put to death, not by living according to the flesh, not by living according to the law. One is life, the other is death. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love towards us, your kindness that extends to a thousand generations. Father, we thank you that you had a plan that was so big that before the foundation of the world was set, you had this plan to bring Jews into it to where the point now is, as Paul talks about in other letters, there isn't a Jewish Christian and a Gentile Christian. There's just sons. There's just adopted placed as sons sons who are all living in dependency upon you a new creation a new man so father help us to live not according to the flesh not according to the laws the commandments because there's no life in that there's just more sinning in that father help us may we cry out to you this week abba we live in dependency, when we find ourselves falling into the same trap of sin, Father, may we not think to the law and to the commandments. That's what's got us there in the first place. Father, may we think to you and your spirit. May we cry out, Abba, may we say, Daddy, help me. Daddy, help me. Help me in this attitude towards this co towards this family member, towards these kids, towards this customer, towards this boss. Father, help me. It's only you, Father, help us to live in dependency upon you because that is life. Father, we love you so much. in Jesus name, we pray. Amen. All right, guys, well, we're gonna cut it off there again. We're not going to have a discussion time uh, this week. uh we we can next week if you uh, we will next week, if you have a question specifically about this week save it, either save it for next week or, um, you could throw it out into the, to the Facebook group. If you want, you can text me, uh, email me, call me, whatever. That's fine. But, uh, we're going to cut it off here and head into, uh, back to our mamas and, uh, spend some time with them. Love you guys. And, uh, I encourage you read through if you don't have time to read through it, listen to it I mean the Bible app has this whole thing where you can just listen to it if you're driving to work if whatever just read through listen through the the letter to the Romans from the beginning to the end over and over it's so it's so much better than just picking up a little verse here or there and taking it totally out of context without any sort of understanding of the backstory of why Paul would even write such a thing because then we put in all of our thinking instead of just what Paul is saying because what he is saying is just beautiful Living in dependency. I love you guys. Have a great week.
0: Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.